following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay. Good evening, everybody. Good evening and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Session number 23 of our Lamar Darthur class. Uh, so, uh, uh, and thank you. Uh, I know some of you are... Um, sympathizing. I've been ill, a little bit ill lately. Uh, uh, last week was just chaotic. I got home the night before and just I, I, I wasn't ill last week. I just had no time. I was like unprepared for for class completely uh, and just didn't. I, I was running around trying to do too many things, uh, the last second stuff that crept up while I was away with my family. So anyway, uh the idea that I could have held class that day, I think, was a little overambitious. But anyway, uh, I've, I have been a little bit ill this week, but I've been trying to fight through it uh, and uh, without uh, uh, going too far under. So, so far, so good. Um, and anyway, so, but we're back and I'm excited to be returning. This should be our antepenultimate day on the tale of Sir Tristram. Uh, here, the book of Sir Tristram here in the middle. Uh, after so two more, so we have this week, two more weeks left, and then after that we'll be uh, in the quest for the Holy Grail and into what is really sort of the turn and then the home stretch uh, of Mallory. Uh, so actually, we're we're. Although it might not sort of feel like it as far as, you know, where the bookmark is in the book, we're actually much closer to the end, I think, than, uh, than that uh, looks like. Um, anyway, so, so we're, 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 we're getting there pretty quickly now. Um, okay, I was just going to say a few things about today's reading, but hang on. Before I forget, let me make sure I do my announcements, because I do have a couple uh, very urgent announcements. In, in fact, starting with one that is uh, like, there's like two hours left. By the end of class, this, uh, out, this announcement will be irrelevant, I think. Uh, the registration for TextMoot is closing tonight. If I if I uh, if I am correct in my information on that, um, Tex Moot is happening. It's our next regional moot. It is happening next weekend on the nineteenth of January down in Waco, Texas, and the registration is closing this very evening as is. Uh, so if you are still hoping to come to Tex Moot, and I certainly hope you are, um, then you should uh, register right now, like multitask during class and do your registration. Uh, you can go to textmoot.org. You can go to signumuniversity.org and scroll down to our events pages there and you will see the big textmoot flag, um, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, so anyway, TextMood is going to be awesome. Lots and lots of people coming. It's going to be a fantastic time. Uh, you'll get to meet the guys from the the hosts of the Prancing uh, Pony podcast, who are wonderful uh, podcasters uh, and really great guys. Got to meet them at MythMoot last year, and they're coming to TextMood this year. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope you'll be able to join us uh, the, the next weekend down in Waco. And again, tonight is the deadline, so get out and register. Second thing is this coming Saturday, uh, through this coming Saturday, between now and this coming Saturday, so you've got several days still to act on this announcement, uh, is our special that we're running on our Lewis and Tolkien class uh, uh, anytime audit. So if you want to do an anytime audit of our Lewis and Tolkien class, really fun class, second class I ever taught um, at uh, Signum University. 
um, that will be uh, we're, we're we're running that through this week. So normal tuition price, of course, is ninety five dollars uh, for any time audits, which is still. I think pretty cool. Uh, we're running this special for only $75 through the rest of this week for Lewis and Tolkien. So wanted to make sure to uh, draw attention to that. Um, and uh, the third announcement is next Monday. So see, something which is happening five days from now is like my most distant and removed announcement here this evening. Everything is is very uh, at the moment. Um uh, our classes start. Spring semester 2019 begins uh, for Signum University. So if you've been thinking about maybe auditing a class this semester, or if you've been taking courses with us and you haven't enrolled yet, well, get on it and do that. Classes are about to begin on Monday. Uh, it's not the absolute deadline for registration. You can join classes within the first two weeks of the start of the semester, but obviously it gets more awkward the longer you wait. So uh, definitely encourage you to look into that. All right. Robert asks a great question. Are we going to be looking at any adaptations, uh, <clears throat> Arthurian adaptations? So, Robert, on the one hand, it's hard to imagine not looking at some adaptations after this. But where, <laughs> once I begin, where, where do I stop? You know, I, I, this is already by far the most out-of-control Mythgard Academy class there has ever been. I mean, we have eclipsed the longest, I think 16 sessions was the longest we've ever had before on a Mythgard Academy, uh, 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 you know, topic. And we're at 23 tonight, and we still have at least seven more. So, I mean, we're going to be at 30 just with the book, right? Um almost twice as many as we have before, but I mean, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it, uh, Jennifer, that's my inclination too. I, whatever happens, I don't think we can not do Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like that's, I think absolutely mandatory. Um, I'm super tempted to, um, do some others too. But again, I, I get, once you start, I mean, like, we could talk about Excalibur. We could talk about, uh, you know, a bunch of, but uh, you know, again, once we start in that direction, it's going to be like another 30 classes, right. On different Arthurian adaptations. Uh, so, but I think we have to do one on, uh, Monty Python. So yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, so we will, so Robert, we will definitely do that one. Um, but I think I'm going to hold myself to that because, again, if I don't, we'll be it'll be December again and we'll still be doing now. We won't even have gotten the chance to start Sound Undefeated yet. Uh, so we're totally going to do that. I want to get to that uh, as soon as my goal to get to Sound Undefeated by April. That's my goal. We'll see if we can get there. Um, so, uh, yeah, cool. All right. So that's what we're going to do. Thinking about tonight's class now. I was I've been reflecting on something today as I've been thinking about tonight's class and and you know the passages that I that I that I wanted to look at for today. I think that the modern impatience with this part of the text and I I've said before I mean and it's pretty obvious right why this part of Mallory is the most often skipped um Almost nobody talks about the book of Sir Tristram. I mean, that is to say, like, almost every course, unless you're doing, like, a whole semester course totally dedicated to Mallory, 
almost everybody skips this part of the text. I mean, you read the beginning part, and then you read, you know, maybe you read like Gareth, you know, the book of Sir Gareth and the book of Sir Lancelot, and then you skip to the end, right? Often you even skip the quest for the Holy Grail sometimes. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, um, it's very common. And as I say, it's not hard to understand, right? Uh, it's very easy for people who are... N- uh, there's a certain sense in which in this section, both with the description of the tournaments, which are sort of the most notorious uh, for this element uh, in this part, but even just the regular action, like several knights are riding together and they meet another knight and he says, would you joust with me? And one was like, oh, I will do it. And the other one says, no, I'd like to do it. And the other one says, okay, you do it. And so they joust and somebody knocks him over his horse croup. And, and, you know, like, how many times does that happen? Like dozens, hundreds of times? I mean, and it's really easy just to kind of let your eyes glaze over, right, when you're reading that. It can become, and again, I totally understand this, it can become almost like listening to an enthusiast of a sport that you know nothing about and are not particularly interested in talk about it, right? Like, you know, the ins and outs of, uh, uh, you know, like somebody who's not interested in baseball, you know, hearing me talk about, you know, the Red Sox farm system. Nobody wants that, right? Uh, Especially not Red Sox fans right now. No, just kidding. Um, But anyway, it's, it's seriously, it's, it's, I get that. And that's a real thing. But there's something that I think that that clouds and that I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of here. And that was what the, the, the sort of the title of tonight's class is. The sort of fatigue that readers often experience at this point in the book masks, I think, an important thing, which is, I think, the action in this part of the book is supposed to be getting a little stale. It's not just that Maori cares more about jousting and the descriptions of jousting than we do. That explains some things. Like, that explains some of the, some of the descriptions of the tournaments and things. But I don't think that that explains everything else. I think that we can see increasingly as we're going through this section, and to me, it's one of the most important elements of this whole long digressive bit that he called the, in the the Winchester manuscript, is is called the Book of Sir Tristram, um, is we see the system under strain. The system is breaking down. The Arthurian world is breaking down. Mallory has depicted this world. Notice what's not happening anymore. When was the last time we had somebody rescued from a giant? Right? When did, was the last time we had a real villain? We've got one, two. Two villains on the loose. Right? King Mark and Bruce on pity. That's it. Right? But even they themselves are different kinds of villains. We don't have anybody defying the system anymore. Right? We have people working within the system exploiting the system. Um, and, uh, and, and, and here we have not just those two main villains, right? King Mark, who's exploiting the whole sort of feudal structure, right? He is king, and so he can get away with doing these things that his, that his subjects wouldn't be able to get away with, right? Um, and then you have Sir Bruce Sanspiti, who is uh, exploiting the fact that he is the fastest horse of anybody else. And we, we will see, and, and, and I think that we can, um, uh, we can see 
we'll see some more in tonight's class some more examples of the ways in which I, I think Bruce Onspite is a much more um, uh, transgressive knight. He's not just a bad knight. He's not just a treacherous knight. He's not just a traitor knight, you know, to use one of Maori's favorite phrases. Um, I mean, he is all those things. There's no question about that. Um, but he is a disruptive knight. He is undermining the entire system of knighthood that uh, has been established and, and which, you know, Lancelot set out to be the exemplar of. But even Lancelot himself is a problem. He's not been a main character for a while, right? We've not really spent much time with Lancelot um, for a while, really, during the adventure of Sir Lakot Maltai was the last time we really spent any prolonged time in Lancelot's company um, uh, during the course of the narrative. And yet we can see the pressure when the world is no longer... We've conquered Rome, right? There's nobody standing up to Arthur anymore. All the big bad guys like Sir Tarquin have been defeated. There's no, there are still some sorceresses out there making trouble, right? But there's, um, there's no, there, you know, we're, we're not, we're not rescuing, uh, damsels from giants, right? We don't have Arthur fighting the giant of uh, Mont Saint Michel anymore, right? We don't get stuff like that anymore. Instead, we just have tournament after tournament after tournament that is this sort of, artificially constructed conflicts simply designed to, you know, match and measure people against each other. But the leaderboard is fixed, right? Lancelot is a problem because Lancelot always wins, right? When you have this closed system, when nothing is really happening, when the Arthurian world is at peace, right? And the bad guys have been purged from the land and everybody's happy, right? Well, then what do you have? All you have left are jousts and tournaments at which Lancelot always wins and Tristram doesn't win if he's... Uh, Tristram wins if he's not there and Lamarack wins if neither of the two of them are there and Palamides wins if neither of the three of them are there, right? That's it. That's all that happens and nothing else can happen in that world. Um... And again, we have the rise of these villains who are not villainous in the old-fashioned way, right? They are villainous uh, in the sense of sort of operating within and subverting this increasingly stagnant system. Um, and um, anyway, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, exactly, James. There's, there's barely even any questing anymore. I mean, like, even the perilous forests are pretty bland, right? What, who are you going to meet? What's going to happen if you go into the Forest Perilous? You're just going to run into other knights wandering around the Forest Perilous, right? Uh, and that's almost it. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, James, I agree. James Stephen points out that most of the time Lancelot chooses not to get involved. Exactly. Lancelot himself... Again, Lancelot is a problem, but it, it, he barely even gets to compete anymore because... You know, if he um, if he does compete, you know, he always wins. So, I mean, he, he's aware of like the role that he plays there. Right. And it's almost like any time he gets in, goes into the fight, he's cheating. Right. Just by being him. It's an awkward, awkward kind of turn, turn of affair. Um, yeah. So. Um, Jennifer Pope says some of the heroes are creeping over to the villain side just for something to do. <laughs> yeah, well, 
the Orkney boys, right, are the sort of the third pole. If we've got Bruce on Spite, who is the most unashamedly villainous knight, right, really that there's ever been that we've seen, um, and by far the most successful villainous knight, um, because of the way that he, unlike Sir Tarquin, right, again, the big bad guy, you know, the big strong knight that, uh, that Sir Lancelot fought back in the book of Sir Lancelot, unlike Sir Tarquin, who sets himself up to be like, I'm taking on anybody, especially Lancelot, right, and I hope that Lancelot comes, in fact, I'm doing this in order to induce Lancelot to come after me. Remember, that was also the game um, that Sir Ironside's The Red Knight of the Red Lawns was playing, right, hoping for Lancelot to come after him. Um, but, of course, he got Gareth instead, Lancelot's protege. Anyway, um, instead of those, we get the people who are operating below the surface, right? Bruce Sans Pitté, whom you never, like, you, you may find yourself in company with and you might mistake him for a regular knight, right, until uh, push comes to shove. But within that world, we do have Gawain now, right? Gawain and most of his brothers, all of his brothers except for Sir Gareth, who are becoming increasingly villainous, and that, too, is... A, is showing the strain of the system, part of the system, right? At the top of that system is Arthur, right? King Arthur is the center. Uh, he's he's increasingly absent. I mean, again, how long has it been since we've spent any significant time with Arthur, right? Um, but in that world, right, Arthur is still the figurehead at the center, and so Sir Gawain, his kin, right, his close kin, uh, are very powerful. The more firmly established that system is, the easier it is, the more natural it is. They, they barely even have to exploit it, right? People won't attack them just because, you know, they, they, they even if they're not angling for it, they never receive the consequences of their actions. And over time, they push the line more and more and more, right? Remember Sir Gawain, that encounter with Sir Lamorak, right? When he just comes across this knight, takes takes the, the other knight's lady while the knight is, is lying there, right, sleeping. He just comes in and goes off with, 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 with his lady and calls back over his shoulder, hey, um, I'm King Arthur's nephew, right? Whatever, right? Uh, just like that, like that excuses anything that he wants to do. But he's King Arthur's nephew. What are you going to do, right? Rebel? Rebel against King Arthur? Um, anyway, it's um, it's as I said, the system is breaking down. We can definitely see strain, and we can see, I think, some bigger and bigger cracks beginning to open up. Um, the um, uh, keep all this stuff in mind. Right as we build this, so we're 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 going to look at some concrete examples of this this trend um, tonight in the Joyous Guard uh, in the Red City, especially the Joyous Guard section. Um, we are building up towards the quest for the Holy Grail. We are we're coming closer and closer now to the quest for the Holy Grail. The quest for the Holy Grail is going to be the major turning point, right? Um, and I think we can only really understand what the quest for the Holy Grail is going to mean for the Arthurian court if we really can sort of see and appreciate. And as I say, I think that a lot of these strains that we're seeing here are masked by modern readers' fatigue, right? Even if you aren't getting tired of it, if it starts to feel 
redundant. I, the more I, the more I, I, I've been thinking about it as I was reading and rereading this section here today, I was like, you know, this this really is starting to feel boring. Why is he? And and I, but I don't think it's boring by accident because at the same time I think Maori is still getting better and better as a writer. Um, I don't think that this is just him droning on and on about something. This is not Maori being a bore, right? Um, this is Maori, I think, getting more and more subtle. And I think that the uh, redundancy isn't quite the right word. Well, stagnancy, right? The, the way that the narrative has seemed to stagnate. It's like, what's happening even anymore? What, what's, what, why are we doing this? Why are we reading this? What's even happening, right? Um, I think that's actually part of the... I don't think this is Maori losing focus. I think this is part of the point. Um, I think that this is what the story is building up to. Because in the end, the quest for the Holy Grail is going to be an answer to that question, right? Finally, what will happen when the quest for the Holy Grail comes around is that the Arthurian world is going to have an actual job again. Right? There will be a thing happening instead of a whole lot of nothing continuing to repeat itself over and over again. And I really think that that's part of the point of this whole section. Um, yeah, yeah. And Karita, I think that's fair. Karita says, King Arthur kind of feels like the kind of boss who talks to you really sympathetically about your trash fire of a coworker, but never really, but never actually fires the jerk. Yes. Yes, I agree. I mean, King Arthur himself, there is no, I think there can absolutely be no question about the fact that the goings on of the Orkney boys is an indictment against Arthur. Um, he can't allow that to go on. Even King Mark is an indictment against King Arthur, right? King Arthur has it in his power to bring King Mark into line. Arguably, that's exactly his job, right? Um, I mean, if he has a direct job, his job is to keep the other monarchs who have fealty to him in line, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's not anybody else's job but his. Um, and he's not doing that. And he is the one who is, yes, Gawain is the nephew of the king. Arthur is the head of their family, right? And it is absolutely his job uh, to maintain a little bit of discipline, at least, uh, among his uh, nephews there. Um, all right. So. <laughs> exactly, Nancy. Nancy says. What is he, the king of England or something? Yeah, no, that's exactly what he is, the king of Logris. Um, Stephen, I agree, he doesn't have Merlin to kick him into action anymore. Um, and it's fascinating because things seem to be, when Merlin was around, Stephen, right, didn't it seem like way too much was happening? Uh, because when Merlin was around, you didn't only have to cope with the things that were actually happening. You also had to cope with all the things that Merlin kept coming in and telling you were going to happen down the road, right? Um, during the Merlin years, there was always this sense of the, the destination, right? Here is the, uh, the end towards which things are tending, right? Um, this is what's going to happen as a consequence of current things. It might have been good, it might not have been good, but it was, it was definitely rolling, you know, in that direction. Um, now, 
so but this kind of stagnancy would never have happened when Merlin was around, right? Because he would at least have been telling us exactly where. Now, fortunately, Stephen, we still have lots of things with gold lettering on them, right? Uh, telling us. And if we just go back and reread some of the things that Merlin carved on various elements of the geography, um, we will find Merlin having predicted exactly what is going to happen, what is going to bring an end. Um, remember that... Uh, the sword of Sir Balin, right? Who, which was like taken in the the, was put in a stone, right? And the stone was set to float on the water magically, um, by in the island by the island where Sir Balin, where Balin and Balin died, right? Remember that? It's and he said Merlin comes along, sets it up there. Remember he put that he attached that special hilt to the sword so that nobody could hold it except for the greatest knight ever, right? And then he put it in the stone and then he set it floating in the water and he timed it. You know, he set its timer, right, to float down the river at just the right time. Remember that? It's going to happen, right? Pretty soon that sword and stone are going are gonna, to are gonna come hoving into view, right, floating down the river. Um, we're almost there, but we're still not quite there yet. Um, yeah, um, good, good, um, <laughs> Karina is disappointed that there is not a band called the Orkney Boys, uh, she's like, she was thinking, surely there must be a folk band somewhere called the Orkney Boys, and, uh, uh, she suggests someone should definitely start that. Totally agree. All right, let's look at some of the concrete examples of the, the sort of generalities I've been talking about here. Um, all right. And there was cried by the coasters of Cornwall a great tournament in justice, and all was done by Sir Galahalt the Hout Prince and King Bagdemagus to the intent to slay Sir Launcelot, other ellis utterly to destroy him and shun him, because Sir Launcelot had evermore the higher degree. Therefore, this prince and this king mad this justice against Sir Launcelot. Let's just talk about that for a second. First thing, this is a little bit shocking in a couple ways, right? First, again, notice how the we see right away an example of the system breaking down, sort of two examples of the system breaking down, right? What do people do when there are no real wars, apart from the occasional and, and in some ways actually uh, sort of refreshing invasion that we got of Cornwall, uh, the sort of disappointingly <laughs> unsuccessful invasion of Cornwall um, in uh, uh, just, 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 just fairly recently, um, which unfortunately failed to oust King Mark. Um, because of Tristram. Anyway, with nothing really happening anymore, all everybody does, all anybody does, uh, is call tournaments. But the whole point of calling tournaments is to just, you know, let, let's have a fair game, right? Let's, 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 you know, match our prowess against each other and, and see who can win, either which teams can win or, or, you know, and, and of course, which knights distinguish themselves. But of course, Lancelot is the chilling factor, right, of this whole game, which is fine, right? But um, to call a joust with the intention of killing Sir Lancelot, that's way across the line, right? Now, as we've talked about before, you know, 
tournaments, jousts. We're still fighting with deadly weapons, even if we're not fighting with the intention of killing each other. You know, this this is a, this is a contact sport. People die all the time in tournaments. Um, that's fairly uh, that. So, this is a very doable plan for killing Lancelot, right? Let's let's have a tournament where Lancelot will show up, and then let's just plan a bunch of us to to attack him and and kill him, and then you know it'll be it'll be okay, right? Um, right, Nancy, of course, except, uh, uh, except nobody can beat him. But see, Nancy, that's why this is such a cunning plan, because Lancelot will still presumably be playing by the rules, right? Uh, so Lancelot will be holding back. So yes, if Lancelot were fighting to the uttermost, and we've seen this, right? We saw this way back in the book of Sir Lancelot. As soon as he flips the switch, as soon as he stops, um, if I, I'm thinking here of Sir Dinadin's categories, right? Um, do we fight for love or for hate? As soon as he stops fighting for love and he starts fighting for hate, he, you know, he starts one-shotting guys, right? Uh, you know, st- guys start, start dropping with, uh, with every swing of his sword. Um, so, but again, he's Lancelot, right? So in the tournament, he's not going to do that, but if we're doing that, but he's not doing that, and we all gang up on him, and we're all trying to kill him, and he doesn't realize it, and he's not trying to kill us back, we've got a good chance, right? So it's actually not a bad plan as far as, you know, murder plans go. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a relatively cunning one. Um, but one of the things that's most remarkable, I think, about this is who's doing it. Galahot and Bagdamagus? I mean, they're reasonably stand-up guys. This is not King Mark. This is not Bruce Sans Pitté, right? Now, both of them have been slightly marginal figures, but remember, wasn't it Lancelot himself? I'm pretty sure it was Lancelot himself who, in the book of Sir Lancelot, got rescued. Yeah, it was. It was It was Bagdamagus' daughter who rescued Lancelot from the four sorceresses, Right, who were like getting him, to, you know, trying to make him choose among them, and then she's like, "I'll do this in exchange for you, uh, you know, fight for my dad." And it turns out he was King Bagdemagus, and Lancelot was like, "Oh, Bagdemagus is a great guy. Of course, I'll fight for him." Remember that? Uh, so same guy, right? Who now is fed up? He's fed up, uh, and Sir Galahalt is fed up, and the two of them are going to get together. And we saw Sir Galahalt hanging out with Tristram and uh, Lamorak just recently. Right. Um, So even people who are not villainous. Right. Again, the system is breaking down. People are not content to be, you know, the extras being knocked off horses by Lancelot and Tristram at every tournament anymore. Right. We've seen Palamides frustration. Right. He has had this sort of high level of frustration because it's it's the frustration of the runner up. Right. The constant runner up, which is what Sir Palamides almost always is. Um, But what about the people who are always coming in 10th? Right. Who are always coming in 15th um, out of a, you know, pack of 100. Right. So they're really good, but they're never going to rank. They're never going to place. They're they're never going to be on the leaderboard. Right. Um, And those people now we see rising up and this is very bad. I mean, this is, this is treason by them. This is treacherous behavior. Um, shameful and shocking, shocking that Bagdamagus and Galahalt should be doing this. 
should have been driven to this. And the fact that they're using a tournament to do it is not only cunning as a way to get at Lancelot. Again, it shows throwing tournaments is what people do, right? That is the system. That is, that is the mechanism of the system, right? Um, and that they would be trying to use that very mechanism now to, uh, as their, well, not murder weapon exactly, but as the, the occasion of their planned murder um, is telling, I think. Um, okay. And thus her counsel was discovered unto King Mark, whereof he was glad. Then King Mark unbethought him that he would have that he would have Sir Tristram unto the tournament disguise it, that no man should know him to that intent that the that the haut prince should ween that Sir Tristram was Sir Lancelot. So King Mark this is so King Mark, right? King Mark who is like, hey, somebody else is planning a treacherous murder. That's great. There's only one way I can improve. So let me try to improve on this by manipulating things so that when they try to to uh, to murder Lancelot, they accidentally murder Tristram instead. That's going to be great, right? So we have him uh, exploiting and indeed even really undermining the treachery of Galahalt and uh, Bagdamagus, right? Because nobody can, uh, uh, nobody can out treason King Mark, um, and again, I, to me, this is a really fascinating. I mean, I, I mentioned envy and malice, uh, you know, the, in the subtitle of my slide. There, envy is obviously what is what is driving Galahalt and Bagdemagus, right? That is that is envy. That is the seven deadly sin. Envy, very plainly illustrated, right? Mark is envious too, but it's more than just envy. Right. Um, his malice, his determination to bring Sir Tristram to destruction, um, no matter what. He doesn't care about the circumstances. No matter what Tristram's deserts are, he doesn't care. No matter what promises he might have made or any calls upon him or what, it doesn't matter. He's just going to, he is all about, he is obsessed with destroying Sir Tristram. Um, so, and, and again, that also, I think, helps to... Well, not recuperate, certainly not excuse Galahalt and Bagdemagus, but the 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 contrast with King Mark there, um, their understandable but still highly culpable envy of Sir Lancelot um, is put, I think, in a different light by the immediate contrast with the I just want to kill him under any circumstances King Mark that we get there. Um, yes. Um... <laughs> yeah, Stephen says he just listened to the Canterbury Tales class, and this sort of uh, reminds him of Hende Nicholas trying to improve the job uh, at the end of uh, uh, at the end of the Miller's Tale. Yeah, Stephen. The only the only difference is, of course, it's he's uh, he's exploiting somebody else's jape, right? Instead of uh, uh, instead of putting the one final flourish on his own, right? Um, uh, which, of course, is almost always fatal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it is an unnecessarily complicated way to murder somebody, Karina, this is. I agree. But again, it just shows King Mark's resourcefulness. 
right, of taking advantage of any opportunity he sees, right? You know, hey, there's a night murder being planned over here. Let me see if I can get Sir Tristram to walk through that at that particular time, right? Um, uh, it doesn't. It, it doesn't matter if there's anything. If there's if anybody is planning to kill any knight out there, he's gonna try to point that gun at Sir Tristram, right? That's just that's 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 where King Mark is right now. Okay. Anyway, let's keep going. And so at that justice come in Sir Tristram, and at that time Sir Launcelot was not there. But when they saw a knight so disguised do such deed as of armies, they went. They went. It had been Sir Launcelot. And in especial, King Mark said it was Sir Lancelot plainly. And there's King Mark being, that is totally Sir Lancelot. I would know Sir Lancelot anywhere. <laughs> Tham they set upon him, both King Bagdemagus and the Hot Prince. And there Knictis said that his was, it was wonder that ever Sir Tristram might endure that pine. Notwithstanding, for all the pine that they did him, he won the degree at that tournament. And there he hurt many Knictis and bruised them. And they hurt him and bruised him, wonderly sore. So it doesn't work, and Tristram escapes. But you notice why it doesn't work? And this, again, is something which... It certainly, again, doesn't excuse or anything uh, what Galahalt and Bagdemagus does, but it shows the limits of their intentions, right? They are... This is bad. I mean, you know, there's no, 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 uh, no way of sugarcoating attempted murder. And yet... It could have been way worse, right? What they do... Notice one thing that I think is pretty important, right? Um, Their murder plan, they still carry it out themselves, right? Um, Their plan is still just to set on him themselves, both of the two of them together. It's not even clear that they bring a posse with them. Right and set upon him like eight on one or something like that. They set on him two on one, with the intent to try to kill him. So their intention is wrong because you're supposed to be trying to defeat people, but not intending to maim or kill them. Maiming and killing happens. Contact sport, but you're not supposed to be going for that in a tournament. Um, you're not supposed to be fighting to the utterance. Um, anyway. So their intentions are wrong. Their ganging up on him two-on-one is, is dishonorable. Um, and yet, they don't go any further than that. And thus, Tristram escapes, right? And it's clear Lancelot would have escaped, too. Um, in the end, they fail because they're not good enough, right? Even two-on-one, they're not, they're not, the two of them aren't good enough to kill Sir Tristram. Um, and wouldn't have been good enough to kill Sir Lancelot, right? So... Back to envy, I guess, for the two of them, right? Um, yeah, so... And, well, see, Gerald, you could look at it as, you know, they have bad intentions and they're also incompetent, and that's true, right? I mean, you could say the only thing worse than, uh, you know, planning and attempting murder is is also failing and being bad at it, right? But, um, but they're bad at it for good reasons, um, for sort of reputable reasons. I think it's the best reason that you can fail at a murder attempt is that you're too honorable, right? Um, or rather, like, they, so they set out to be dishonorable, but in the end, they are insufficiently dishonorable to succeed, right? That's, that, that's I guess, how I would characterize this particular um, 
murder attempt uh, by Galahalt and Bagdamagus. Um, so, anyway. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about that, Christy. Christy is asking, is there some significance to King Mark being the only character with a name from the Bible? I haven't noticed any others. Uh, you don't remember Bleabras from the Bible? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't, I mean, first of all, it's certainly it's not a name that Mallory's making up, so um, it's hard to, to read too much into the choice of the name since he was stuck with the name. I mean, he inherits the name. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. The book of Bagdamagus is clearly apocryphal. Uh, Dolores Stroke, that's certainly true. Um, uh, yeah, um, sorry, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm, I'm trying to think of other examples. I'm like, there must be somebody else with a, uh, a Bible name. But no. Um, yeah, I don't know, Christy. I don't know what to make of that. Um, other than to say, apparently, that was not a major trend in naming among these this particular class of people at this particular time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of them, of course, are... French and from, you know, from the Maori's French books, right? So, um, and are <clears throat> there in other forms, uh, often. And of course we see Maori himself changing the spelling and the names on multiple occasions. Yeah. Not quite sure what to do with them. I mean, sometimes we do get explanations, right? Like Tristram, right? You know, Tristram's name is, we're, we're told the meaning of Tristram's name. It's about the sadness of his birth, right? Because of his mother's death uh, in childbirth with him. Um, that's good. Robert, I, I, would, I knew you'd come up with one. King Lot. There you go. King Lot. There's, a, there's an upstanding Bible name for you. There you go. King Lot. Um, yeah. Both are kings. And neither are awesome, right? Uh, I mean, King Wad is not a King Mark-level villain, obviously, but uh, he was one of the chief enemies of King Arthur there at the beginning. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, King, King, King Wad was a knight worth his salt, Arthur. I totally agree. Um, yeah. Anyway. The study of the names, it would be a complicated study, because a lot of these names have been passed down through multiple traditions and languages and have like morphed and changed from you know, French and Celtic and, and Latin. And it's so you get some pretty, uh, uh, and, you know, and now English, um, uh, you get a lot of weird, uh, sort of linguistic grandchildren here among the, uh, among the names. Anyway, okay. Let's keep going. Finally, somebody puts his foot down with the King Mark situation, right? So the, there are at least some people in Cornwall who have decided that at last they have had enough with King Mark, right? And Sir Sadoc 
at the urging of La Belle Isode, is the one who finally says, enough is enough. I am not obeying this loser anymore. In fact, I'm done with him, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to attack him. Um, so he's the one who he rescues Sir Tristram, and then, and then King Mark immediately puts him in prison again. Um, like, who didn't see that coming? Um, then Sir Sadok rode upon his way unto the castle that was called Leonas, and there he espied of the treason and felony of King Mark. So of that castle they rode with Sir Sadok till they come to a castle that heeked Arbry, and there in that tune they found Sir, Di- Sir Dinas the Seneschal that was a good knight. And remember, Sir Dinas the Seneschal has been a guy who's been on Tristram's side all along. But Juan Sir Sadok had told Sir Dinas of all the treason of King Mark. Then he defied such a king. That's an important word. Defied is a is a uh, uh, that's a that's not a vague word. That's a word with concrete political um, implications. There, um, defied such a king and said he would give up all his londes that held of him that he held of him. And that's what it means, right? When you defy somebody, when you defy your monarch, that means you are you are dissolving your feudal oaths to that person, right? So, um, Sir so Sir Dinas the Seneschal is done, right? This is the guy who is the parallel to Kay, right? In the in the the court of Cornwall, and he has absolved himself of of his um, uh, uh, of his loyalty. Right to King Mark and returned his lands. Right, I, I will not have any lands at your hand. I will not have any. Um, I will not owe anything to you anymore as king. And it's like finally time that somebody did something like that. Again, there are two ways that a monarch who is acting as badly as Mark has has been acting. Right, there are two ways that he could be disciplined. One is from above by his feudal lord who is Arthur. The other is from below by his barons, who could either say, that's it, forget it. I'm not, you know, your strength is our, is us, right? And our following of you, I'm not following you anymore. Um, or, of course, they could get together and rise up and, and uh, try to take him off the throne, as happened on several occasions in English history. That kind of conflict between the king and the barons. Um, okay, anyway. And when he said these words, all manner connected's side as Sir Dinas side, found by his advice and of Sir Sadok's, he let stuff all the towns and castles within the country of Leoness and assemble all that they could mack. We're 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 gonna stuff and garnish ourselves, just like uh, the Duke of Cornwall was stuffing and garnishing himself against King Uther way back in the very first chapter, right? Um, they're ready for a war, right? Because they know what, what, what they're doing here is arguably an act of war. Mark would be well within his rights uh, to, uh, to attack any of his barons who defied him like that if he has the strength, right? Um, but they're preparing for war, and we see now a movement in Cornwall of people who are divesting themselves uh, of their loyalty to King Mark. And I can only say, it's about time. So... King Mark. <laughs> By the way, um, Karita, you were talking about 
the most the most ridiculously overcomplicated murder plots. No, this one is my vote for the most ridiculously overcomplicated murder plot. So Juan King Mark hard and understood how Sir Dinas and Sir Sadoc were arising in the country of Leoness. He remembered of treason and wildness, as if he ever forgot them, right? Hey, maybe I'll try treason for a change. And so thus he did let mock and counterfeit letters from the Pope, and did mock a strange clerk to bring those letters unto the King Mark, the which letters specified that King Mark should mock him ready upon pine of cursing, that means excommunication, with his host to come to the Pope to help him to go to Jerusalem for to mock war upon the Saracens. So when this clerk was come by mean of the king, anon therewith King Mark sent that clerk unto Sir Tristram, and bade him say thus, that he will go war upon the miscreants, he should go out of prison and have all his power with him. I'll let you out of prison. Look, hey, I've been summoned to a crusade, right? So I'll let you out of prison if you go to the crusade, right? And you'll have all your power. I'll, I'll, I'll let you have everything, right? Uh, uh, you know, all your lands and all your, uh, all your vassals and everything. Juan Sir Tristram understood this letter. Then he said thus to the clerk, Ah, King Mark, ever hast thou been a traitor, and ever wilt be. Concerning which I can only say, it's about time somebody said that. But thou, Clark, said Sir Tristram, say thou thus unto King Mark, Sin the Pope hath sent for him, bid him go thither himself. For tell him, traitor king as he is, I will not go at his commandment. Get out of prison as well as I may, for I see I am well rewarded for my true service. Uh, well, if he summoned to Jerusalem, he'd better go. Then hadn't he, right? You know, I don't have to go because he's been summoned to the crusade. Uh, I'm. Why would I go and fight, fight for him? Um, yeah, Karina, uh, <laughs> I agree. I was thinking the same thing. Karina says, counterfeiting the Pope. Who is he trying to outdo in villainy? Yeah, I think, Karina, that he's kind of on the... Um, <laughs> one could argue, this would not be a good argument, but one could argue that the whole mortal sin thing uh, leads to this potential cul-de-sac, moral cul-de-sac, right? That King Mark is kind of in a might as well get hanged for a sheep as a lamb kind of situation here. I mean, he is guilty as the day is long of like everything, right? So, um, he, you know, he's committed murders and tried to commit murders so many times. What else does the guy have to lose? I mean, like, what, is somebody tell him he's going to hell? Like, he's already going to hell, right? So... You know, seriously, um, how could uh, how could it get worse? <laughs> so, um, again, I, it's that's not a good argument. It can get worse, right? You can still repent, and and repenting is better than doing worse and worse things all the time. Um, however, nevertheless, um, uh, uh, you can imagine a a dedicated villain like King Mark saying, "Dude, what have I got to lose?" Um, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um uh 
Delos Stroke is uh, op opining that his next move will be to fake a letter from Verizon telling him to call customer service, which should tie him up for a year or two. I have a better idea, Delos Stroke. Have him call the IRS. Um, anyway, <laughs> the IRS customer service line. Uh, that, that'll be good. Anyway, okay. So, but notice Tristram, Tristram is like unfoolable at this point. Right. Not because he is so very cunning, um, but because he I, like there's almost nobody who is still falling for King Mark's tricks. The, now, we just saw, of course, Bagdamagus and uh, uh, and uh, Galahalt being manipulated by King Mark. Right? Oh, yeah, that's totally Sir Lancelot. Right. Um, King Mark's devious. I'm going to have you kill Tristram instead of Lancelot. Um, uh, trick almost worked, right? But that's because he was just playing on what they wanted to believe, not getting them to trust his word, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Then Sir Sadak rode upon his way unto the castle that was called Leonas, and there he espied of the treason and felony of King Mark. Oh, wait, no, that one I already read. Already assembled. I went the wrong way. Sorry. In the middle of this, Sir Percival shows up, which is kind of funny, because Sir Percival is the most naive character that the, of all. Remember, he's the youngest knight of the Arthurian court. He came, he's he's the latest fresh-faced knight who comes in like Sir Gareth did, who comes in like Sir Lakote Maltile did, but he's younger than both of them uh, were at the time. Um, and so he comes to the court. He can't be more than like 13 or 14 years old. Percival is very young and very innocent. And then remember we got that portentous, like the, the damsel who had been mute, uh, you know, who, who had been dumb her whole life speaks, Right and uh, proclaims that he is, the, you know, one of, like the Holy Knight, and uh, and and he gets the seat at the right hand of the 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 the, the seat perilous or the siege perilous on the, on the round table. Um, Percival, though, uh, got to be the most like gullible guy. He's he's completely innocent, right? Um, Percival shows up in Cornwall in the middle of this, right? And he's like, King Mark, you should not treat Sir Tristram like that. He's a great guy, and you're doing very wrong, right? Um, you should cherish Sir Tristram. That is truth, sighed King Mark. But I may not love Sir Tristram, because he loveth my queen, La Belle Isode. And Percival's remark is really interesting. Ah, fie for Sharma, said Sir Percival. Say ye never so more, for are not ye uncle unto Sir Tristram? And by your nephew ye shall never think that so noble a knight as Sir Tristram is, that he will do himself so great villainy to hold his uncle's wife. How be it, said Sir Percival, he may love your queen sinless, because she is called one of the fairest ladies of the world. Then Sir Percival departed from King Mark. 
still encased in the bubble of his of his idealism. But yet he bethought him, uh, that is Mark, not <laughs> Percival, certainly, of more treason. Notwithstanding, he granted unto Sir Percival, never by no manner of meanness, to hurt Sir Tristram. Nothing easier for Mark than to promise a trusting person, right, that he is certainly reformed and will never hurt Sir Tristram again. Um, uh, an oath never more easily taken or broken. Um, uh, so... Sir Percival's comment here is interesting on a couple of levels. One, the first thing I would emphasize about it is that it reiterates something that I've been saying and that I think is really important, that this category exists, right? This category of sinless loving, which you can love a, a married lady, you can even love the queen, Right. And and the sinless love like that can happen. Right. Like, she, you know, you admi he admires her, obviously, who wouldn't. Right. She's very beautiful. He can be devoted to her service. That's all fine. As long I mean, as long as he's not holding his uncle's wife. Right. As long as he's not actually sleeping with her, it's fine. Right. And Percival is like, yeah, no, that's great. Right. Everyone, everyone would approve of that. Um and he's appalled at the very suggestion that King Mark is like, King Mark, what, how could you even, right? How could you even begin to think that your own nephew would love your wife adulterously, right? He must love her sinlessly. Now, this is deeply uncomfortable because, of course, we know full well that Tristram and La Belle Isode are loving adulterous, adulterously. Mallory has been explicit about that. Um, they are sleeping together and have slept together on more than one occasion, right? So this is um, uh, uncomfortable, right? It shows Percival's innocence, right? His assumption that a good knight of good reputation like Sir Tristram obviously is more than benefit of the doubt, right? I mean, it's shocking for anybody to suggest that he would, you know, be having a carnal relationship with his uncle's wife, right? Because that would be appalling. Um, but of course, he is. Um, Percival, notice, is here not just espousing, but presuming upon that unusual code of sexual morality that Lancelot was the paragon of, that he was the pioneer of, right? Um, which was countercultural. Everybody else was... Everyone else is doing it, right? But Lancelot's not doing it um, and doesn't believe in this whole loving paramours thing. Loving is good. Loving paramours, not good, according to Lancelot. And here's Percival, like, of course no one would do that, right? Who would do that? <laughs> good old Percival. Um, uh, the tale of Sir Galahad in Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a switch. It's based on a passage in Mallory, but it isn't Galahad. It's Percival. <laughs> so, just... We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. I love Sir Percival so much. Um, anyway, okay. <laughs> so, 
sorry, I'm, uh, Karina is speculating about King Mark's day planner. <laughs> like breakfast treason, hunting treason, lunch treason. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, you know, and then King Mark bethought him of treason, right? It's sort of, it is kind of like crossing, okay, oh, now it's time for my daily treason. Uh, yeah, I agree. It, it does feel a little bit more like that. Um, one of the last things that I would point out about this passage, though, when Lancelot talked like this back in the tale of the Book of Sir Lancelot, our reaction to that, right, it sounds striking, a little surprising to hear him espouse this kind of thing, um, to see him deviating from the, the typical... Uh, you know, values of the court the way that he is. There's a tendency for people to be resistant about whether he really means it, right? Whether it's just window dressing, whether he's actually going to be consistent to that. But my sense of it is that I don't think our reaction to that passage is supposed to be just skepticism, right? He is espousing a very high ideal, and he may or may not live up to that ideal, right? But if he doesn't live up to that ideal, if Lancelot fails to live up to the ideals that he espouses, it would be merely tragic, right? Somebody shooting high and not achieving that height, right? When Percival talks like this, he sounds like he's from Mars, right? I mean, we look at him and we're like, oh, oh, Percival. I mean, that's so cute, but you really don't have any idea how the world really is, right? And again, I think that this is a sign. The difference of... Now, part of it, of course, is the difference in their positions, right? Percival is the rookie, Right. He is the sort of marginal one here, uh, you know, marked for greatness with this sort of messianic arrival at Arthur at Arthur's court. But still, um, still very much the newbie of the Arthurian world. Right. So he doesn't have the kind of stature that Lancelot had even back in the in the in the book of Sir Lancelot. Right. Um, even then, he already had way more stature sort of generally than Percival has has now. Um, but still. It seems to me that in, in in putting this expression, the expression of these same values in Percival's mouth in this way, right? The disjunction, the, the gap, the chasm, really, between the happy little world that Percival is living in, right, and the real world. It's so much wider, isn't it, than the gap between... Lancelot was a departure, but it wasn't a huge departure, Right? It was like a different flavor of the rest of the world. Probably better, right? Um, you know, I mean, it, it's like... But it was still similar to it, right? Um, this is... Uh, I, again, feels completely out of touch with the world, right? He has no idea how guilty uh, Tristram is, right? I mean, all the things we've seen Sir Tristram do, and he's just like, Sir Tristram is so awesome. He would never do anything like that. Obviously, he couldn't have, 
Oh, oh boy. You don't even know, right? Um, uh, Percival, you have no idea what Tristram has done. Anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. Tristram finally gets out of prison again, and then gets put in prison and gets out of prison again. Uh, anyway, there's a series of prison breaks uh, for Sir Tristram, and then finally he... So La Belle Zode also has rebelled, by the way. Notice this is another major step that's happened, is that La Belle Zode has finally left King Mark. She's run off on him, right? She never did that before. Even when he was... Sir Tristram was being, you know, uh, under the many plots to murder him and everything, La Belle Zode was still living in Cornwall. She's left. She's gone off with him now. Juan Sir Launcelot saw these knictis of the Rhone table thus overthrow. He dressed him to Sir Tristram. They're meeting at a tournament, right? Uh, and that saw La Belle Isode, how Sir Launcelot was coming into the field. Then she sent unto Sir Launcelot a ring to let him wait it was Sir Tristram de Lyonnais. Because, of course, Sir Tristram is as he always is in disguise. Juan Sir Launcelot understood that he was Sir Tristram. He was full glad, and wolt not joust. And thon Sir Launcelot espied whither Sir Tristram yode, and after him he rode, and thon either made great joy of other. And so Sir Launcelot brought Sir Tristram and his ode unto Joyous Guard, that was his own castle, and he had won it with his own hondas. And there Sir Launcelot put them in to weld it for their own. And wit you well, that castle was garnished and furnished for a king and a queen royal, there to, there to have sojourned. And Sir Launcelot charged all his people to honor them and love them as they would do himself. All right, a couple things that I would point out here. First, see again yet another example here of the system breaking down, right? You have these tournaments. What's the points of these tournaments? Remember back in the day when we cared who won these tournaments? Right, like where anybody cared who won these tournaments. Again, when King Bagdemagus's daughter rescues Sir Lancelot and is like, my dad is facing, you know, the King of North Gallus in a tournament, and the King of North Gallus has several of of Arthur's knights fighting for him, and his side is never going to win. Would you fight for his side so that his side wins? Like people cared whose side won the tournament, right? Now, what Lancelot is about to do is what should happen. Right, So he sees a knight on the one side who's just dominating the field. He, Lancelot, has sensibly and honorably kept himself out of the combat, right? So that he doesn't cheat by playing because he's so much better than everybody else. So he is courteously not involving himself in the tournament. But when he sees this one guy dominating on the other side, the thing for him to do should be to fight for the other side. Right. Then again, we have a fair fight now. They've got one, you know, elite guy on their side and then we've got one elite guy on our side. Now let's see which side wins. Right. But no, we're not doing that. Right. Because Tristram and Lancelot are not on, not only throw off the field every time they uh, they participate, but now they're colluding with each other. Right. They refuse to fight each other. And uh, um. And they, uh, uh, again, like, what's the point of the tournament, right? Why even throw a tournament? Well, okay, like, to murder somebody. But, uh, again, you see, like, the whole thing is becoming 
kind of pointless. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Interesting. David Erbach says that, uh, joyous guard throughout this section becomes this sort of hub for certain nights, right? Kind of taking the place of Camelot. Yeah. Nobody's going back to Arthur's court anymore. People are coming now to joyous guard, right? Um, the other thing that's interesting about that, notice the significance. Joyous Guard, that was his own castle, and he had won it with his own Hondas. Do you see the political significance of that? What is the status of Joyous Guard? Why is Joyous Guard important, politically speaking? While you answer that question, ah, Dever's already got it. Exactly. It was, and Nancy and Gerald, it's, it's not given to him by Arthur, right? Um, he holds lands from Arthur as Arthur's vassal. And he still, I mean, it's not that Joyous Guard is in rivalry politically with Camelot, right? Um, because, of course, it's Lancelot's castle and Lancelot is Arthur's knight, so it's fine, Right. But he d didn't receive it from Arthur. So, should the time come when Lancelot defies Arthur, not that he would, right? But should the time come when Lancelot defies Arthur like Sir Dinas the Seneschal and Sir Sadoc defied uh, King Mark earlier on, he would still have Joy's guard. He wouldn't have to give that back because it's his and he won it with his own hands. Um... This will be important later. Uh, anyhow, okay. Um, but notice it's so it's it's the joyous guard though, right? This is a this is the place of joy. Um, it's a castle, right? So it's it's a well defended castle, uh, but it's joyous, right? So it's its name is is clearly very important. This is a place of happiness. So he has this this happy place, this little love nest that he has set up, and he lets Tristram and Isolde live in it now. Um, Jennifer was concerned about this and, uh, who was, um, yeah, Deborah was asking about this too. Does Lancelot still think they love each other sinlessly? I don't know. I don't know. We know for a fact that Lancelot did assume that earlier on. We know that Lancelot and Tristram have been reconciled after the whole marrying is owed to the White Hands thing happened, right? Um, Mowry hasn't said explicitly what Lancelot believes. Is he, in fact... But you know what? Isn't Percival's own... innocence a little bit suggestive here. Just before Lancelot takes Tristram and Isode and sets them up at his own private happy castle, right? Um, just before that, we have Lancelot's own sexual morality being voiced by 
a very naive person who's totally out of touch with the world. Is that meant to prompt us to... Lancelot isn't Percival, right? Or is he? Is he kind of like Percival? Does he believe? He seemed to believe before that Tristram and Isolde were living sinlessly when we knew they already weren't, right? Um, is the whole Lancelot, Guinevere, Tristram and Isolde friendship and pen pal relationship, largely, um, primarily based on false premises? Is Lancelot being almost as naive uh, as Percival was, though he doesn't look as adorable doing it, right? Um, and we don't see him being made a point. I mean, it's hard not to laugh at Percival. I mean, the only thing that keeps us from laughing at Percival in that scene is that he's so cute and it's so uncomfortable, right? It makes us squirm, I think, rather than laugh, but um, uh, certainly rather than mock. But yeah, see, James, uh, I, I absolutely think that he sees the parallel between himself you know, between himself and Tristram, and you know the the you know between their relationships, but that's exactly where it seems to me that the naivete comes in, right? We have every reason to believe. Well, I'll put this the other way: we have no concrete reason to believe that Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship is not sinless. Other people assume it isn't. That we've seen way since way back in the book of of Sir Lancelot. But we have been given no concrete reason to doubt that Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship is still sinless. Um, I can see no evidence, no positive evidence so far, other than the speculation and assumptions of people like Morgan Le Fay, um, which is on, which even Sir Tristram figures out might be untrustworthy, right? If only King Mark and Morgan Le Fay are the ones who are saying this, right? Remember. Uh, King Arthur himself also tumbles to that conclusion that maybe if uh, if these reports are only coming from King Mark and Morgan Le Fay, maybe you shouldn't believe them, right? Anyway, we've every we we do have reason to think that Lancelot and Guinevere are still sinless, and they do clearly see themselves as parallel. You know, they're the two great pairs of lovers. Um, I suspect that Lancelot does believe that. Tristram and Isolde are uh, sinless, loving sinless. And he's wrong. He's as wrong as Percival is wrong. Um, we just don't get that uh, pointed out to us. as. But again, I think you know, I think that it's Percival's otherwise senseless intervention in the story in Cornwall seems to me almost to prepare the way for this. Right. To uh, draw attention to that. Do I think it's a willful ignorance, Deborah? Possibly. Possibly. Um, is Lancelot smart enough to tell Hawk from Handsaw? Right. Uh, and be able to figure out that maybe, you know, as but he's kind of uh, um, trying to maintain deniability and still wants to think the best of Tristram and Isolde. I don't know. Um, it's possible. Um because he doesn't doesn't want to admit that he could go that way, well, Devra, I think he clear he still I think clearly intends that it will not go that way, um, but push hasn't really come to shove yet, 
um, as far as the relationship of Lancelot and Guinevere is concerned. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But yes, if I had to... If I had to guess based on what Mallory has told us, I would opine that Lancelot at least has convinced himself that Tristram and Isolde are still loving each other sinlessly. Yes. And if I were adapting it, that is absolutely how I would depict Lancelot. Okay. This <laughs> brief aside, uh, which I think helps to explain more clearly. We've got, this is the, what, the third time we've gotten a, uh, uh, a digression like this about Sir Tristram, but this is the most telling of all of them. And every day, Sir Tristram would go ride and hunting, for he was called that time the chief chasser of the world and the noblest blower of an horn of all manner of measures. For as bookers report, and as Mallory never tires of telling us, of Sir Tristram come all the good terms of venery and of hunting, and all of the seizes and measures of all blowing with an horn, and of him we had first all the terms of hawking, and which were beasties of chas and beasties of venery, and which were vermins, and all the blasties that longed to all manner of gum, first to the uncoupling, to the seeking, to the finding, to the rechas, to the flicht, to the death, and to the strock, and many other blasters and termes that all manner gentlemen hath cows to the world's end to pry Sir Tristram and to pry for his soul. Amen, sighed Sir Thomas Mallory. Okay. Um. <laughs> so I guess we know one of Thomas Mallory's favorite uh, uh, hobbies, right? Obviously a hunter, right? Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was laughing out loud, but I read that, that last line, too. Um, you know, Zach, you know what I like to think about that? I like to think that that line was an insertion by the scribe, who is sick of Maori going off on these digressions, praising Tristram for inventing the terms of hawking and hunting, and that there's like a wry, sardonic, uh, um, you know, sort of fake salute. So they say, oh, yes, amen, St. Sir Thomas Mallory. Obviously, as I've written, this is like the third time I've written this passage. Um, anyway, uh, I, I have this little fantasy that that's a, that's, that's a, a scribe, sardonic remark. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, Karita, uh, I think in the end of the at the end of the day, this seems to underlie the primary reasons why Maori likes Sir Tristram so much more than you do, right? Is that Maori's like, okay, you know, yeah, whatever else, he doesn't try to depict, he doesn't doesn't glorify Sir Tristram completely, right? I mean, of course, he does glorify him in many ways, but I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't pull punches about him, right? He depicts him doing really bad things uh, on a fairly regular basis, though he's been going straight for a while now. Sir Tristram hasn't done anything appalling in quite some time. Um, but um, anyway, he, uh, although he doesn't depict him as the perfect knight, um, 
you know, he's still all in support of Sir Tristram because whatever else you can say, he invented all the terms of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, he literally wrote the book about hunting and, you know, us gentlemen, all manner of gentlemen that like to hunt, right, should be thankful, for, should be praying for Sir Tristram's soul uh, until the end of the world. Um, so there you go. Sorry, I just got that, that amen side Sir Thomas Mallory. Uh, I couldn't uh, I couldn't pass that by. Let's do some uh, uh, Bruce Sans Pitté here. Here comes Sir Bleoberus. Sir Bleoberus comes in. So you'll remember that Sir Palamides, I think he's with Sir Gareth already, and Sir Bruce Sans Pitté, who's fallen in with them, uh, right, and they don't know who he is. And then Sir Bleoberus comes chasing after him. Right, um, and ends up and Sir Palamides ends up fighting. So Sir Palamides ends up fighting Sir Bleoberus essentially to defend Sir Bruce Sans Pitté, which of course he would not do under any circumstances. Sir Bleoberus beats Sir Palamides for the first time ever, and then comes after Bruce Sans Pitté. Right, mock ready through false traitor connect Sir Bruce Sans Pitté, for I will have ado with thee to the utterance for the noble connectes and laddies that thou hast betrayed. Juan Sir Brunus heard him say so. He took his horse by the bridle and fled his way as fast as ever his horse meeked wren. Juan Sir Bleoberus saw him flee. He followed fast after through thick and through thin. And by fortune, as Sir Br- Brunus fled, he saw even afore him three knictes of the table round, that on hicked Sir Hector de Maris and the other hicked Sir Percival de Gallus. The third hicked Sir Harry Lafee's luck, a good knecht and an hardy. And as for Sir Percival, he was called that time, as of his age, one of the best knechtes of the world, and the best assured. So when Sir Brunus saw these knechtes, he rode straight unto them, and cried and prayed them of rescues. What need have ye? sighed Sir Ector. Ah, fire knechtes, sighed Sir Brunus. Here followeth me the most traitor knecht and the most coward and most of villainy, and his nom is Sir Brunus Sounds Pitté, and if he may beat me, he will slay me without mercy and pity. Now, this guy is cunning, right? This guy is way smarter than King Mark because his plans and ends are much simpler, right? Not... Uh, the and I forgot who made this parallel, but I totally agree um, that at the, by this point in the book, um, uh, King Mark and, and Sir Tristram are almost playing the roles of of Wily Coyote and the Roadrunner uh, now. So instead of some Wily Coyote plot for destroying Sir Tristram, oh wait, I forgot to follow up. Of course, the fake crusade plot. Remember how he follows that up with a second fake bull, right? He, he sends a fake postscript by the Pope, right? Second papal bull. P.S. I mean, Tristram should also go, by the way, right, to the promised land. And Tristram is like, what kind of an idiot do you think I am? Um, anyway, I, uh, so, uh, <laughs> Signed the Acme Papal Company. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Anyhow, um, Sir Bruce Onspite is much more direct. And one of the things that makes him much more direct is that, again, his ends seem to be much more modest. Instead of trying to uh, uh, do to the death 
uh, Sir Tristram, however he can manage to do it. Instead of doing that, his goal is just to kill pretty much anybody he can, he can get an unfair advantage over. Um, right, which is a, a much more attainable goal because uh, much more opportunistic. So, um, But again, notice how he escapes in this whole situation, right? Um, he, the reason he is, you know, so uh, uh, Nancy, I agree with you. Nancy says, I can't believe this guy, <laughs> this guy is still around, right? Bruce Ons Pitte has had the best run of any villain that we have seen in the entire text, right? I mean, there is nobody who can escape. Even Sir Garland, the Invisible Knight, right? Uh, whom, Dolores Stroke, you were longing for earlier on. Even Sir Garland, the Invisible Knight, didn't have the kind of career that Sir Bruce Ons Pitte does, and he is not even invisible. Or is he, right? He kind of is invisible. He makes himself invisible the old-fashioned way by putting a helmet on, right? So nobody knows who he is anymore. Uh, but notice how he is continually manipulating the expectations of knights, right? He is exploiting the knight errantry system um, so and making it work for him. When he is here trying to escape the law, all he has to do is claimed to be the victim, and these upstanding knights, because they're good upstanding knights who are supporting the system, will fight in his defense until they all get beaten by Sir Bleoberis, uh, who and then once they all fight each other and they're all weakened, then he tries to kill a lot of them, right? Starting uh, with good old Sir Harry, uh, uh, Sir Harry, the son of the lake. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, Deborah thinks he should write a handbook calling, uh, making traitorous knighthood work for you. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but it's so easy for him to do what he does, Right. On the one hand, Nancy, I agree with you. It seems amazing that he's had such a long run. But at the other, on at the other, you know, on the other hand, it's easy, right? This is not even uh, not even challenging for him. Um, and notice the results of this. All he has to do is tell one lie, um, and just transplant. He doesn't even have to say. He doesn't even have to run a campaign trying to recuperate his reputation or anything like that. He just has to exploit his reputation, right? Oh, Bruce Unspitty is the guy behind me, right? And do they stop to try to get to the bottom of that? Do they interview the knight following him to see if he might be Bruce Unspitty? Of course, they can't compare his face to a wanted poster because we t that would actually be really funny. <laughs> be, okay, this, this oh this this needs to exist, right? I want a one pane comic with a wanted poster of just a knight uh, with a in a helmet with his visor down, saying you know wanted. Like, have you seen this man? <laughs> right, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, oh man. Uh, anyway, um, so 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 yeah, like because. They do what they do, right? Because they don't ask, because they joust first and ask questions later. What happens? 
who's the first conflict here? The first conflict here is between Sir Bleoberis and Sir Ector de Maris. They're cousins, right? I mean, they're not only on the same side. They're not only two good guys. They're they're cousins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deborah, I agree. Deborah also wants a wanted poster for Sir Garland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one, one knight in armor uh, and, one, and one invisible frame. <laughs> Have you seen either of these villains? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I... D- Ideally, okay. Wait, I'm now elaborating it. So the the wanted poster with the the picture of the knight in armor should be being held at arm's length, uh, by like being presented by a knight wearing identical armor to the knight. Have you seen this man? I'm I've been looking everywhere for this guy. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, um, so um. Oh, cool. Yeah, Stephen Cover is uh, is thinking of Diggory here in uh, uh, in The Magician's Nephew. I suppose all the old fairy tales are more or less true, and you're simply a wicked, cruel knight like the ones in the stories. Well, I've never read a story in which people of that sort weren't paid out in the end, and I bet you will be. I bet he will be, too, Stephen. Um, but the ways in which he is avoiding the kind of mayhem that Bruce Sanspite is able to uh, to create... Again, I think clearly shows some flaws in the system, right? This system, which, like, you know, as I was suggesting at the beginning, I feel like the narrative is kind of breaking down, and I don't think it's breaking down out of incompetence on Mallory's part, right? The whole momentum of the Arthurian world is faltering here. And one of the things that Sir Bruce Sans Pitté does uh, is to, 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 to demonstrate it. Right to show the problems with the system. When you're getting into scrapes this way, when you are, uh, when you end up fighting your cousin exactly because you're trying to, you think you're trying to defeat the guy who set you on to fight your cousin. Like you're doing something wrong. Like this, this, that, this system could be upgraded. Right. Uh, definitely. Um, but yeah, no, Gerald, the cousins don't recognize each other for a very good reason, which is that nobody can recognize anybody. Of course, nobody, even Isolde doesn't recognize Tristram when he's naked. Uh, but even apart from that, um, uh, it's a good thing that nobody, uh, as I've said before, has to be called in to identify a body uh, or anything because nobody could do it. Um, but when you're in armor, yeah, no, it doesn't even matter. Uh, uh, nobody, uh, y- you are, it's one of the rules of Sir Thomas Mallory's narrative, you are completely unknowable if you are in armor. Um, yeah. Okay. So, they're asking Sir Palamides, Sir Percival is asking Sir Palamides if he ever met anybody besides Lancelot or Tristram who could match with him. Yes, said Sir Palamides, there was the third, as good a connect as any of them, and of his age, he was the best, for yet found I never his peer. For and he meeked have lived till he had been more of age, an hardier man there liveth not than he would have been, and his nam was Sir Lamarack de Gallus. And as he had justed at a tournament, there he overthrew me and thirty knechtes mo, and there he won the grave. And at his departing there met him Sir Gawain and his brethren, and with great pain they slew him feloncely. 
unto all good knecht is great damage. So it is Sir Palamides who brings the news that it has finally happened. The event, long foreboded now, uh, has actually occurred. Sir Gawain and his brothers have managed to murder Sir Lamorak. And anon, as Sir Percival heard that his brother, remember Sir Percival is full brother to Sir Lamorak, his younger brother, heard that his brother was dead, Sir Lamorak, he fell over his horse mine, sooning, and there he mad the greatest dole and sorrow that ever mad any noble knight. And when Sir Percival arose, he sighed, Alas, my good and noble brother, Sir Lamorak, now shall we never meet. And I, true in all the wide world, may not a man find such a knight as he was of his age. And it is too much to suffer the death of our father, King Pellinore, and now the death of our good brother, Sir Lamorak. Poor Sir Lamorak. We barely knew ye, Sir Lamorak, or at least we got to know you a little bit, Sir Lamorak, but uh, you were awesome, and now you've been murdered. And poor Sir Percival, who has never met his brother, Sir Lamorak, um, and now will never get uh, to meet him. David, it is a little bit surprising that the death happened off screen, right? Um, but get used to that. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of important things that are going to happen off screen from now on, actually. Um, the narrative is going to be getting a lot more selective as we move forward. Uh, as he stops kind of bouncing around as much as he's been doing here, um, he's, um, he's going to be... Uh, uh, more significant things are going to like that are going to happen away from the narrative and we will only hear about them. Um, well, that's one thing though, that I want to emphasize though, about this. One of the things that I was reflecting on upon reading, uh, you know, upon rereading and thinking about this passage was the importance of that concept of worship, which has been so central all the way along, of course, the reputation, um, but it's not just, I think it's easy, it's kind of like what I've said before, indeed, I was just talking about this last night, um, uh, about the Lord of the Rings, how people often forget how much more we know than everybody else knows, right? Um, it's easy for us to forget what the spread of information was like so far before the information age right? Before not only the internet, but the printing press, right? Um, people don't, it's news spreads very slowly of things, right? So you could be very famous, right? As a knight, you could have done, a, 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 you could have a, a very, very full resume, right? And yet no one's ever heard of you, Right? You can show up at a tournament and people are like, what? Who are you? Right? What? You're not on the leaderboard. Right? To win worship, to have everybody talking about you, to have your reputation spread wide, that's a really significant accomplishment. And think about everything that has relied upon word of mouth, the spread of tidings, right? The spread of news like this. Um, think of... Think of the friendship of Tristram and Lancelot, right? They've been BFFs since long before they ever met. Why? 
because of the worship that reached either you know, from everything that they heard about the others, um, they have you know made their assessments of, of each other, and they both decided that they loved each other. Right? Love is the word they've been using. Um, again, and I say that in order to emphasize this is not just like, "Hey, you sound cool." Um, again, they're like best friends before they've ever met. You know, they're, they, you know, they've never even met on, on an, in an internet chat room or something like that, right? They've just have read news stories about each other, right? They've 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 heard about each other's deeds and so decide that they must be cool, right? This the whole thing, the whole basis of reputation, the whole the 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 all of the status within this world, is based upon this very difficult. Sir Percival's never met his brother. He's never seen him, right? He wouldn't recognize. Nobody recognizes anybody, but uh, even without his helmet on, he wouldn't recognize him, right? Um, and uh, the great dole that he makes is therefore almost completely. We, you might say almost completely theoretical, right? And Stephen, I think that that's a really, really good point, right? Um, Stephen says love in this case is a conscious action, not an emotion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's a really important element of all of this, right? Um, you act, right? You, you choose based on what you hear. Um, this is why we find so many ladies who love Lancelot before they've ever met him. Right. They're not swept away by how dreamy he is. Right. They don't see him and fall in love with him for that reason. Right. They've read his news clippings and they're in love with they've decided they're in love with him, whether they're Morgan Le Fay or, you know, uh, uh, somebody else's random daughter. Um, like, you know, unlike King Bagdabagus's unnamed daughter. Um, so. The same is true of Percival. His love for Sir Lamorak is almost equally theoretical. He's got good reason to love him, and it's not just by reputation. This is not just like, oh, you know, I've collected all your baseball cards, and so I'm your biggest fan, right? It's not just—he's his brother, right? But he doesn't know him. He's never met him. Again, it's—his relationship with Lamorak is as theoretical as Tristram and Lancelot's relationship was before they finally met. Um— so, um, yeah, um, anyhow, I do think, Stephen, that that isn't like Percival is lamenting so grievously in part because like he believes that he should, right? He, he chooses to do that, um, uh, to, to make that kind of dole, right? Uh, because, there's no reason, there's no, it's not just he's overwhelmed by emotion. He, he, I'm not saying that he, he's faking it or forcing it. I don't mean that. Uh, I just mean what we're seeing here is not an overwhelming rise of spontaneous emotion. This is in its way a rational response to the news that he hears. Um, and it does have choice involved um yeah yeah 
<laughs> Doris Droko pines that only uh, Helois's love of Lancelot is truly real. Yeah, the necrophiliac sorceress. The only real love story in Maori. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway. All right. At one point, Sir Tristram <clears throat> hears of these two knights who just set upon this other knight and killed him. And he's like, that is not okay. I'm going after these guys. And so he goes after them and says, I want you... And, and he knocks them both off their horses and he says, I want you, I want you to promise me to uh, tell me your names. Which thou well, Sir Knik, said they. We fear not much to tell thee our names, for my nam is Sir Agravine, and my and my nam is Sir Gaheris, brethren unto the good Knik Sir Gawain. The good Knik Sir Gawain. And we be nephews unto King Arthur. Did we mention that we're nephews unto King Arthur? Well, sighed Sir Tristram, for King Arthur's sack I shall let you pass as at this time. But his is sham, but it is sham, said Sir Tristram, that Sir Gawain and ye be common of so great blood, that ye four brethren be so nomad as ye be. For ye be called the greatest destroyers and murderers of good connectors that is now in the realm of England. And as I have heard say, Sir Gawain and ye, his brethren, among you slew a better connect than ever any of you was, which was called the noble connect Sir Lamarack de Gallus. And, and it had pleased God, said Sir Tristram, I wold I had been by him at his death day. Than thou shouldest have gone the same way, said Sir Gaheris. Now, fair connectors, than must there have been many more good connectors than ye. Of your blood. Yeah. Uh, you and what army, says Sir Tristram there at the end. If he and Lamarack had both been there, you don't have enough brothers to have murdered the both of us uh, had we both been there. Which is almost certainly true, by the way. There is no way that the four bad Orkney boys uh, could have taken Lamarack and, uh, and Tristram four on two. Uh, that was not happening. Um, yeah. Anyway... Um, despite the fact that Sir Tristram is casting the murder of Lamarack in their faces, right, saying that he wishes he would have been there and he would have killed the bunch of them had he been, he is still at the same time saying, uh, I'm going to let you pass at this time, right, because you're Arthur's kin. And to kill you would be an insult to Arthur. And I'm not going to do that. But it's a shame that you are coming of such great blood. In a couple senses, right? It's a shame that good blood produced such murderous twits like as you, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a shame to the great blood itself that you are of it, right? It is not a good look for Arthur. Um, yeah, yeah, um, we saw Gawain doing his, I'm going to take your damsel because I'm King Arthur's nephew thing before. Agravain and Gaharis are just going around just killing folks, right? Because they can, apparently. Um, when Gaharis and Gawain 
were plotting the death of King Pelinor way back when, when they were convinced that he killed their father. Um, they were being coy about it, right? They were hiding that. They were going to do it in secret. Now, they're bragging about it, right? Why should they conceal their names? Well, <laughs> oh, let me count the reasons why you should be concealing your names. Um, but they don't feel the need to do that. Amidst all of this, of course, we can fortunately still rely upon comic relief from Sir Dinadin, right? Uh, and it's wonderful how Sir Dinadin is called the greatest border and jester and jopper of all the Kanictas. But of course, what we, can, what we see happen increasingly is not Sir Dinadin joking with people, but people joking with Sir Dinadin, right? Because he is a great joker, uh, everybody, including Sir Tristram. Uh, remember how Sir Tristram used to be Sir Dinadin's straight man, right? Remember back when they were like attacking the thirty knights, and and uh, Sir Dinadin is like, "Heck no, man! I'm not attacking thirty knights. Are you are you insane?" Uh, and Sir Tristram finally was like, "Fine, you attack one, I'll attack the other twenty nine, right?" But Sir Tristram was was legitimately frustrated with Sir Dinadin at the time, right? And now, uh, Sir Dinadin. Uh, Sir Tristram is continually trying to get Sir Dinadin's goat. Like, that's what he does. Um, so Sir Tristram goes and he just goes and pretends to be a coward, right? Like he's not going to fight, which is, of course, playing Sir Dinadin's game. He's like exaggerate, playing exaggeratedly the role that Sir Dinadin played with him before, right? Um... This is him, Sir Tristram, refusing to fight with Sir Dinadin when Sir Dinadin challenges him. Not so, sir, said Sir Tristram. Why are ye so wroth? I am not disposed to fight at this time, just like Sir Dinadin might have said. Fie on thee, coward, said Sir Dinadin. Who shamest all knictes? Almost exactly what Tristram said to him before. As for that, said Sir Tristram, I care not. For I will wait upon you and be under your protection. For cows, ye are so good a knight that ye may save me. God deliver me of thee, said Sir Dinadin. For thou art as goodly a man of armies and of thy person as ever I saw, and also the most coward that ever I saw. What wilt thou do with great spears and such weapon as thou carriest with thee? Sir, I shall yef them, said Sir Tristram, to some good knight when I come to the tournament. And if I see that you do best, sir, I shall give them to you. Uh, and this is, by the way, I think in this whole exchange, Sir Tristram is being as legitimately clever and funny as we ever see him being. Um, but um, the way in which Sir Dinadin himself... also has a role to play. It's obviously a much more attractive and a much gentler role than the role of Sir Bruce Sans Pitté, right? And yet he also, from the beginning, has been kind of gently poking fun at the system, right? At the chivalric world of Arthur's court in its prime here um, uh, that we've been getting. Uh, and this, the way in which he's being teased now, 
the way in which he was made fun of at the tournament at Sir Lou's, right? When Lancelot uh, knocked him off his horse while dressed in drag, right? And then put him in drag in order to parade him in front of the uh, the queen and Guinevere falls on the floor laughing. Um, that's, again, we can see, think of the way in which like Sir Dinadin made Lancelot promise not to come after him, but then Sir Lancelot breaks his promise and comes after him just for fun, right? Sir Dinadin is all, you know, he provides and both the jokes that he plays and the jokes that are played on him provide funny, even heartwarming at times, I think comical, um, uh, examples still of some of the strain on the system, right? Why do people act like this? Why do we, even here, even his failure to recognize Sir Tristram, right? Uh, and his, swallowing of the story that Tristram is as much of a coward as he claims to be, right? Um, he's being toyed with. Sir Dinadin is being toyed with. The, the rules of the system are being exploited to tease Sir Dinadin, right? Um, this is obviously very different in its effect of Sir Bruce Sans-Pitté exploiting the terms of the system in order to kill people and destroy things and rape damsels. But, um, but yet again, in both cases, we can see, uh, the, the rigid system being sort of brought under scrutiny, right? You can't really trust errant knights to be what they say they are. Um, and, uh, and, and again, when you're invited to laugh at somebody, whether you're Sir Dinadin making everybody else laugh at somebody like Sir Tristram, who's trying to earnestly to be a hero and do bold and heroic things, um, or whether you're somebody like Sir Tristram inducing everybody else to laugh at Sir Dinadin, who is still just being a good guy, um, still nevertheless, you're putting some strain upon the whole... Uh, uh, you're, 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 you're raising the whole system of knight errantry uh, up for laughter, right? Okay. Here's, speaking of things that could be played for jokes, in a film adaptation, this scene could be played for joke, for cruel jokes against Sir Palamides. But that's not how I would do it. Sir Palamides has met Sir Tristram, and of course Sir Tristram is still disguised. This is, of course, the moment in which he reveals himself to Sir Dinadin as well. Um, but it meets Palamides, and Palamides is uh, bragging like he often does. Ah, Sir Knicht, which Knicht hot ye most in the world? sighed Sir Tristram, knowing the answer. Forsooth, said he, I hot Sir Tristram most to the death, for an I may meet with him, the ton of us shall die. Now, Sir Palamides has been quite consistent in this uh, uh, expression, and we know this not to be an idle boast on his part. Right, Every time he has met with Sir Tristram, he has indeed challenged him to fight and wanted to kill him and offered to fight him to the uttermost. Right, Palamides is only still alive because Tristram has let him live many times before. Um, so he has rarely backed down from confrontation with Sir Tristram. 
But now having said this, again, the same thing he said many times before, ye say well, said Sir Tristram, and now wit you well that my name is Sir Tristram de Leonesse, and now do your worst. Once Sir Palamides saw him, saw him say so, he was astonished, and then he said thus, I pray you, Sir Tristram, forgive me all my evil will, and if I live I shall do you service afore all the Canictes that been living. And thereas I have owed you every I have owed you evil will, me sore repentis. I wot not what aileth me, for meseemeth that ye are a good knicht, and that any other knicht that nameth himself a good knicht should hot you, me sore marveileth. And there I require you, Sir Tristram, talk non displeasure at mine unkind wordes. Now, like I said, it would be easy to play this scene for laughs at Palamides' expense, right? Palamides is talking big, thinking Tristram isn't there. He finds that Tristram is there, and then he's like, Oh, ah, uh, sir, I am so sorry. I didn't really mean that. Did I say that? No. No, in fact, I can't even believe anyone would ever say that. In fact, anybody who says anything bad about you, it's just, I just shocking. I can't even believe anyone would ever mean anything. Whoever said anything like that? Yeah, no, uh, please forgive me, right? Easily, easily you could play it up that way. I think that is missing the point completely. This is for a couple reasons here. One, again, we've seen him talk like... We've, this situation has played itself out before several times, right? Where Palamides has confided to Tristram in disguise that what he wants most is to meet Sir Tristram and fight him to the death, right? What would you do if you had Sir Tristram here with you, says Sir Tristram in disguise? I would fight him to the death, says Sir Palamides. Um, at which point, on one occasion, Sir Tristram says, well, I am Sir Tristram, and what do they do? Proceed to fight to the death, except Sir Tristram doesn't kill him. Or another occasion, Tristram continues to... Con Remember when he rescues him? When he rescues Palamides from being tied up in the woods and refuses to... And, and still prevents him from ever finding out who he was and who rescued him? Because he doesn't want... Because he knows that if Palamides does find out who he was, he will fight him to the death, and Tristram doesn't want to fight him to the death. Um, so... One thing is that we, Palamides is not afraid of Sir Tristram. We know this, right? Secondly, his backing down here, this is a very full backing down. Forgive me all my evil will. And if I live, I shall do you service before all the knights that, that are living, right? Um, he swears service to Sir Tristram. He's never been afraid of Tristram. He's lost to him many times. However many times he's lost has never discouraged him before. Right? I wot not what aileth me. This begins to sound like a real epiphany on Palamides' part. What's, what's been wrong with me? For meseemeth ye are a good knight. For, you know, you're, you're one of the good guys. You're a really good knight, and one of the things that we've been seeing, remember we've been, ta we've been talking about um, C.S. Lewis's observation about the Arthurian world, that as time goes on, the blacks get blacker and the whites get whiter, right? Uh, and we've been seeing that happening, right? We Notice how increasingly the good knights hold together. Lamarack and Lancelot and Tristram and Palamides even, right? Uh, Sir Gareth now comes in and meets Sir Tristram and immediately BFFs, right? Because they're both good knights. Um, 
it's like at this moment, Palamides realizes, my goodness, like what, why have I been doing this? Now, we know the answer why he's been doing this, right? He's been doing this because of envy, because he's sick and tired of always coming in second place to Sir Tristram, first in the heart of La Belle Isode from way, way back before she even married King Mark, back when they were both, when they were all three of them in Ireland, right? Um, and secondly, of course, in every tournament he's ever fought in with Sir Tristram. So um, there's an answer, right? Why uh, I won't not what with me. I knew I know what ails you, Palamides. What did ail you was envy, right? But he he has gotten over that, right? Every good everyone that names himself a good knight that anyone who does that should hate you is astounding. And of course, he, I think here is speaking of himself. He was just expressing hatred. I hate Sir Tristram most to the death, right? Says he like a broken record. Says he like he's been saying for years. And it's like when Sir Tristram challenges him, and there he is right in front of him. You want, you want to do this again, Sir Palamides, right? Round eight? Come on, let's go. And Palamides is finally like, you know what? Gosh, I don't want to fight round eight with you. Now that we're here again, um, it now, I now don't even know what ailed me anymore, right? Um, uh, <laughs> you know, Sir Tristram says, why do you hate me? And Sir Palamides seems to be responding like the Knights and Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, really just have it to be brutally honest with you, right? I've hated him for so long that it's just, it's what I do. And he decides here, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, we have seen already this tension in the hatred, right? Palamides and Tristram have been enemies from the beginning, but they've been enemies who keep accidentally falling out of being enemies with each other. Um, enemies who keep helping each other uh, and then taking it back and fighting again. Right. And now Palamides real, seems to realize in this moment, and I think that he means it in this moment, um, that actually he doesn't want to do this anymore with Sir Tristram. All right. Uh, we are coming towards the end of our time here. Let me do one more and then we'll finish this. The, the actual description of the murder of Sir Lamarack again still happens off stage, but Sir Palamides, who had it first, right? Um, so uh, he was like the first guy to tweet out the news uh, about Lamarack's death, so he tells the story here to Sir Tristram and Sir Gareth. Iwis, sighed Sir Palamides, so old I, that is, Sir Tristram has just said, I, I, I would give all the gold between here and Rome, which is quite a lot of gold, uh, to uh, have been there when Sir Lamarack was killed. Iwis, sighed Sir Palamides, so wold I, and yet had I never the gree at no justice, no other tournament, and that noble knight Sir Lamarack had be there, but other on horseback, other Ellis on foot, he put me ever to the worse. And that die that Sir Lamarack was slain, 
he did the most deeds of armies that ever I saw Kniek do in my life. And one, he was given the gree by my lord King Arthur, Sir Gawain and his three brethren, Sir Agravine, Sir Gaharis, and Sir Mordred, set upon Sir Lamarack in a privy place, and there they slew his horse. And so they fought with him on foot, more than three hours, both before him and behind him, and so Sir Mordred gaff him his death wound behind him at his back, and all to hew him, for one of his squires told me that saw it. So we learn how Sir Palamides uh, learned it. So notice something here. It is not only that they ganged up on him four on one. Uh, they didn't just do that, right? Notice how much worse this is than what Sir, uh, uh, Sir uh, uh, Prince Galahalt and King Bagdemagus were doing to Lancelot at the beginning, right? They were fighting him two on one, and they were trying to kill him when they weren't supposed to be, but they were, they were both of them coming at him on horseback, right? They still fought him sort of fair and square, even, well, not fair, but square anyway, right? Um, first, the Orkney boys killed his horse, no. First, they attacked him <clears throat> at the end of a day when he had done all these great deeds, right? So he's all tuckered out at the end of the day of the tournament. Um, and they choose that moment to gang up on him, right? And then first they kill his horse and then attack him four on one. And he is, in the end, stabbed in the back. Um, yeah. Um Yeah, Christie's wondering what what were all of his squires doing while he was fighting four on one. Um, I mean, his squires might be like, you know, ten years old, basically. You know, they uh, so uh, hiding behind a tree probably is what they were doing. But they witnessed it anyhow and brought news of it back to the court. Not that apparently Arthur seemed to mind that much. Um, yeah. Deverisee, don't you want to see this as a buddy movie? I'm telling you, Sir Palamides would make such a cool protagonist. Uh, uh, there, there, there really should be a Tristan Palamides buddy movie. Uh, there's never, I don't think Sir Palamides has ever even appeared. Um, I mean, he never even gets put in as a, um, as a, like a bit character you know, in any of the Arthurian films. Has anyone ever depicted Sir Palamides? I don't remember one. Um, anyway, okay. Now fie upon treason, said Sir Tristram, for it slayeth mine heart to hear this tale. And so it doth mine, said Sir Gareth, brethren as they be mine. Sir Gareth is hearing this story of his own brothers, right? He is the fifth of this set of four, and he is equally appalled and is expressing, like, I am on the side of you guys, right? I am with the good knights, not with the murderers, right? Um, very clearly. Um, <laughs> Nancy F F Fosberg specifies she does not really want to see Morgaz's death scene uh, uh, on the screen. Understood. Kind of graphic, right? Um, you know that, like, the HBO adaptation would not uh, shy away from that scene, right? But uh, but I hear you. 
I hear you. Okay. All right. Let's stop here. Um, we're getting ready for the tournament at Lana Zepp. We're going to have a small digression onto the, uh, the, the journey of uh, Sir Palamides and his great triumph at the Red City, which is cool. We're not going to spend too much time with that. We'll visit it briefly. Um, but so we'll, we'll finish up the very end here uh, of, of, that, of that bit, and then we'll go on to the great tournament at Lana Zepp. This is the last, the last big tournament before things get real. The last big tournament before the uh, the system begins to break down even more significantly. And, of course, before everything gets repurposed into the quest for the Holy Grail. So, thanks everybody for joining me tonight. See you tomorrow for the... Or tomorrow. See you next week for the tournament at Lana Zepp. Uh, and, uh, uh, and as we continue to move towards the climactic events of the story. So, Thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Next week, don't forget, register for Text Moot right now. It's closing this minute. <laughs> so thanks, everybody. Uh, bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.